as a church, we're here and we gather every Sunday morning to celebrate Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen? And when we come to Christmas, what we're doing is we're focusing in upon the meaning of Christmas. And we call it the Advent season. We talked about this. We did a pop quiz a few weeks ago. We talked about that Advent meant coming or arrival. And what we celebrate at Christmas as the people of God is the arrival of Jesus Christ to this earth. Now, I want to start by saying something very interesting about the birth of Jesus Christ. The birth of Jesus Christ in his life was something that was predicted and foretold in the Old Testament. And Jesus fulfilled in his life everything that was predicted and foretold about his birth and his coming to this earth. That makes Jesus a uniquely singular figure in all of human history. Consider with me for one moment that when a child is born, the child is born with a potential of what they might do, what they might accomplish. But with every child that's ever been born in human history, except for Jesus, they arrive on the scene as a baby, and we don't know how their life will potentially unfold. Like when Adolf Hitler was born, yes, he was born, and born as a, as a baby, he was just a baby. He was just a life like any other life. We don't know the significance of, of Hitler, and we don't know the impact that he had on the world in such an atrocious way until his life unfolded. We look back upon the birth of Adolf Hitler, and we say, look at what that child became. Uh, on a positive note, you take somebody like Martin Luther King Jr., and when he was born, he was born just a baby. But the impact of him and what he would be and what he would accomplish for civil rights within this country, like those things weren't known until after his life was over. That's the case for every single person that's ever been born except for one person, Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ entered into this world, what we're going to look at today was who he would be, what he would do, how people would respond to him, those things weren't a potentiality. It wasn't like, oh, here's baby Jesus born in a manger. I wonder how he's going to turn out. No, baby Jesus and all that he would be and all that he would do was already foretold. And so today, this morning, on the Sunday before Christmas, what we're going to do is we're going to come one more time to the Old Testament and to the prophecies of Isaiah, and we're going to consider together who the Messiah would be how the world would respond to him, what he would do for the world, and what the result of his coming would mean. You see, with Jesus, unlike any other historical figure, none of that's an ultimately a mystery. It was known, it was foretold, and it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so there's no passage that better illustrates this, I believe, in the Old Testament, let alone the New Testament for that matter, potentially, than Isaiah 52 and 53. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 52, and then we're going to look as well at all of 53. This is a really sacred section of God's Word. It's all God's Word. It's all sacred. But what I mean is there is so much here. Literally, one message couldn't really unpack the depths and the beauty of what we're going to see, but we're going to give it a try. 
I want to read through the entirety of these verses, starting in verse 13 of chapter 52. I want you to listen. Just kind of sit back this morning and take this passage in as you are going to hear the description of the Messiah, how the world would respond to the Messiah, what he would look like to the world, and then what he would do for the world. So let's pick it up in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall <clears throat> shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they had not heard, they understand. Now, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or mystery that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we, while well, we esteemed him not, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Now, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, well, he's laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened out his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep that bore it before its shears is silent, so he opened out his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although... He had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him and to put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities." Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Amen? Amen. 700 years before Christ. You're right. This prophecy was foretold. And when you read this word from the Lord, I started by saying every child that's ever been born is a child who was born with the potentiality of what they might be and what they might do. And yet what we've just read is that with the coming of Jesus Christ, with the coming of the Messiah, his life has been foretold. It's been predicted. In fact, Isaiah starts with giving us the identity of the Messiah. He gives us the identity of the Messiah, if you were listening closely. Now, he doesn't give his name. No, instead he comes 
and he tells us in not necessarily cryptic terms, but the identity of, of who this person will actually be. And he says to us, well, here's the identity of the Messiah. It's God himself as a servant. That's the identity. This one who will come, this one who will come from God, as we even saw last week, is once again being emphasized by Messiah or by Isaiah as God himself. Now, where do we see this in the text? Notice it starts in verse 13 of chapter 52. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. And the first thing you would say is, oh, well, the Messiah is going to be a servant of God. Now, I want you to be careful as you read that. There's no doubt that the one who will come will function as, will be in the role of a servant for God. But you can't stop there. While we know that the person who will come will function as or in the role of a servant for God, this person is nonetheless God himself. And we see that because of the phrase that comes right after it. My servant shall act wisely. Pay attention, church. It says, he shall be, this one who's going to come, shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now, if you know your Bibles at all, you should know that the first commandment is, you shall have what? No other gods before me. Yet Isaiah is saying the one who's going to come is going to be high and lifted up and exalted. Isaiah has used this phrase one other time to describe a person in his prophecies. He's used this exact phrase one other time. Turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, in verse 1, Isaiah writes these words. He comes into the temple of God... And he sees God. And he says in verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. In the place of supremacy was none other than God himself. And Isaiah, when he uses this phrase to describe the servant of God, he's letting us know that in some miraculous way, the person who will come, the Messiah who will come, is God himself, functioning as a servant. In verse 1 of chapter 53, he emphasizes this point all the more, because he says in verse 1, Who has believed what he's heard from us, and to whom, describing the one who's going to come, has the arm of the Lord been revealed? When it's said that the one who's come will be the arm of the Lord revealed, earlier in his prophecies, as again Isaiah was talking to the people of God, he said way back in Isaiah 51.9, he talked about the arm of the Lord having been revealed when God parted the Red Sea, when he redeemed and delivered Israel out of Egypt. This phrase, the arm of the Lord, isn't talking about somebody who will function in the strength of God. He's saying that this one who will come is God himself in his power and in his might. The identity of the one who will come is God himself. In servant form and in servant function, but make no mistake, this is the identity of the individual. What makes that so remarkable is that later in Jesus' life, when he comes to this earth, 
He's continually going around saying, I did this to fulfill the prophecies. I did this to fulfill the prophecies. I am the fulfillment of this prophecy. And when Jesus comes and he says those things, he's pointing to himself as the Messiah of the Old Testament. Now, I just told you that if you read the Old Testament with a biblical lens and biblical eyes, you know that the Messiah prophesied is said to be God. And so every time that Jesus says, I'm the Messiah, who is he also claiming to be, church? He's claiming to be God. Now, the religious leaders at that day, they, they knew that. That's why they were so ticked off at him. Because he continually was equating himself with God. And they struggled with that. This is one of the reasons why we can't just take Jesus ever and say that he was just a good teacher. Because Jesus doesn't demand to be viewed as just a good teacher. He demands to be viewed as the Messiah, and the Messiah was predicted to be God. Now, here's where things get crazy. He identifies the Messiah, but he says, here's how, though, the Messiah will appear to the world. The crazy thing about this prophecy is he says, the Messiah will be God himself come as a servant. But you know how he's going to appear to the world? The text tells us, He's going to appear to the world as insignificant and unimportant. That's how he's going to appear to the world when he comes. Now, you should hear me say that and think to yourself, how could God, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who is high and lifted up, the one who when Isaiah saw him fell down on his face and says, I'm unworthy to be in your presence, how could God ever come into our world and be viewed as anything other than majestic in glory. Like, how could that be? God would have to, in some senses, wrap himself up, hide his glory. But how could he do that? How could he come and not put his full glory on display? What would he have to come as? Well, we know what he would come as. He would come as one of us. The greatest costume, if you will, that God could ever put on to, to hold back the glory and majesty of who he was was to look like a human being. Consider that for a moment. He's like, you know what? You know what? I, In order to be viewed by the world as unimportant and insignificant, I'll just look like one of them. <laughs> you should feel like a knock on yourself when I'm saying that, all right? God's like, he's like, here's how you hide glory. Here's how you hide majesty. I come as one of them. I come just like one of them, as a human being. Look at verse 14. It says, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He comes like the children of mankind. Verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. When you and I turn to the New Testament, when Jesus Christ comes into this world, he fulfills this prophecy to a T. He comes as a human being. He does not start his life. God does not come to earth as some kind of spiritual apparition or some superhuman kind of human being. He comes as a human being, and not just any kind of human being. He starts his life like we all started our lives, as a baby. A baby coming into this world. You know, babies are human beings. 
They're just really pathetic little human beings, right? And Jesus says, if I'm going to fulfill this prophecy in such a way that people won't even notice me to begin with, I'm going to come as a baby. And so he takes on human flesh. He fully becomes one of us. He's born to a carpenter and his wife. He's not born in a palace, and we talk about that often, you know, baby Jesus, not born in a palace. But think of how important that is. Because if he was born in a palace, if he was born to a king and a queen, you would think, oh, maybe this could potentially be someone great. But Jesus takes that off the table. He's like, I don't even want people to look at me and to think there's a potentiality of my greatness. He's born to a carpenter and his wife. He lives in a backwater town, Nazareth in Galilee, a no-name village at the time. As he grows up, he grows up like any normal child, There's nothing remarkable about his youth, even as he moves into adulthood. And he begins to take on his ministry that he came to do. Even when he performs his first miracles, he's continually pushing the glory away from himself. He performs these great miracles, and he says, don't tell anybody. He performs these miracles, and and he continues to not want to invite the glory, to invite the praise. Why? Because the Isaiah prophecy said that when he come, he would be viewed as insignificant and unimportant. But the prophecy doesn't just stop there. The prophecy goes on, and it doesn't just say, this is how the Messiah will be viewed. It comes in and says, look at how the Messiah will be treated. Look at how the Messiah will be treated. Now, for Jesus to be viewed as unimportant and insignificant, That's one thing. But Isaiah says, it's not just how they'll look at him, it's how they'll treat him. And how you treat somebody, how you engage them, has has huge ramifications. There was a study that was done uh, just a few years ago by this neuroscientist. And he did this thing where he said, I would get all these comments about people when they would be... Um, pushed aside by other people, or they would be viewed as unimportant by others. They would begin to feel lonely. When they would be rejected by people, this neuroscientist said, I would hear people make this statement. They'd say, oh, it's like a a knife to the heart or like a punch to the gut. Have you ever heard somebody describe that? When they've been rejected by someone else. And so the neuroscientist came and he said, says, I wonder why that is. And so he hooked up a bunch of people to this brain scan machine. He says, what happens to people when they are rejected by others? How do, they, how do they process that in their brains? And so he created this game, and the game was really simple. You'd be hooked up to a brain scan, and then you'd play the game, and there would be three individuals in the game. And so you knew that you were playing with other people. The reality was you were playing with the computer. You just didn't know that. You were told that you were playing with other people who were in other rooms. And as you played that game, the game was very simple. You would just pass this ball to each other in the game. But midway as you're doing it, you know, just passing the ball and you think that you're doing this activity with others, midway through the game, they would stop passing the ball to you, the other two players. And he said you would see that all of a sudden, the people, when they realized that they were no longer being played with, these were adults, by the way, right? These aren't kids. When the adults weren't being played with, when the ball wasn't being passed to them, they would start to get really, really upset. And they would stop the test at that point, the person would get up and they would, they would have these looks of frustration on their face and they would say, well, what happened in the game? And the people would say, well, they stopped playing with us. 
And when they looked at the brain scan of the people who had been rejected while playing the game, and they looked at people who had been physically harmed by others, the brain scans showed no noticeable difference. And so what this neuroscientist said is, when you're rejected by other people, it makes sense why we say it was like a punch to the gut or a knife to the heart. Because your brain almost cannot distinguish the difference between physically harmed and being relationally rejected. Isn't that interesting? And when you come to this passage in Isaiah, I want you to put this into human terms. It says first and foremost that nobody's really going to notice Jesus. Nobody's going to think he's important. But then the text takes it a step further and says, here's how he's going to be treated by the world. He's going to be despised. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be oppressed. And he'll be eventually murdered. This is what he's going to experience. This is how the world will treat him. Verse 3 says it. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Like one from whom men hide their faces. Verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered him, that he was cut off out of the land of the living. They made his grave, verse 9 says, with the wicked and with the rich man. Church, this is what the Messiah was said to have experienced. And this church is exactly what Jesus himself experienced. When he came to this earth, the New Testament records for us that he was rejected by his own people. He would do these miracles and these acts of, of love. And some would follow him, and others would reject him. But even as he came to the end of his ministry, he was arrested in the garden, and his own followers didn't hang with him. And then he goes before an unjust trial. He's accused of things he did not do. He was spit upon. He was beaten, despised, rejected, oppressed, and eventually he was nailed to a cross hung between two thieves, just as the verse says, verse 9, and they made his grave with the wicked. Consider that. Before Jesus was ever born, before he ever took his first steps as a child, his life had already been foretold. His experience was already known. When God came down, when Jesus entered in to this earth, he knew exactly what he would experience. Relational rejection, the physical rejection, the torture and the pain. You see, church, Jesus experienced exactly what was prophesied here. The specificity of what is said in Isaiah is carried out you can't read this passage and not stand amazed that when you look at Jesus and you look at his life, he experienced everything that Isaiah said he would experience. Even to the place where verse 9 says he would die with the wicked and he would be buried in the grave of the rich. When he was taken off of the cross, you know what happened, right? He wasn't buried in a family tomb. 
The rich man came and said, can I take Jesus and bury him in my tomb? The tomb that Jesus could not afford was given to him. This tiny little prophecy all the way back in Isaiah chapter 53 verse 9, Jesus fulfilled even where he would be buried. We look at this prophecy and we say, can you believe? Can you believe this is what Jesus experienced? But not just the fact that he fulfilled this prophecy exactly, but it was this. Jesus allowed all of this to happen. Did you know that? He came knowing that this would happen to him, and he didn't do anything to stop it. Why? Because he knew that the prophecy had to be fulfilled. He didn't attempt to stop it. Verse 7 says that he took it all like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and a sheep that before its shears is silent, Jesus opened not his mouth. He took it. He took the rejection. He took the despising. He took the oppression and he took the killing. He took it all. He could have stopped it. But he didn't. In fact, there are these two times when Jesus kind of shows a little bit of his glory just to kind of remind you of who he actually is. Because on the outside looking in, if you watch Jesus' life unfold, there would be these moments where you're like, this guy's amazing. But towards the end of his life, when he's arrested, when he's brought to trial, he's looking his weakest. He's looking like, this guy's a nobody. But in those moments, he does two things. First, Matthew 25 tells us, or 26 tells us, when he's being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter takes out his sword. And you remember what Peter does? He cuts off the ear of the servant. And Jesus sees him do that, and he picks up the ear and he heals the servant. And then he speaks these words to Peter. Peter, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus says, don't forget who I am for a moment. I am God. I've come as a servant. But don't forget I'm God. I'm letting all of this happen to me. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 54, but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? I'm not calling on the angels because the scriptures have to be fulfilled. The Messiah has to come. He has to suffer. He has to go through all of this. I am that Messiah, and I'm allowing it to happen. And then later on, when he goes to trial, and he's standing before Pontius Pilate, Pontius Pilate gets all high and mighty on Jesus. Don't you know who I am? Pilate basically comes and says, and Jesus is like, don't you know who I am? <laughs> he comes to him, and he says these words to Pilate. He says, listen, Pilate, John 19, 11, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Unless you've been given to you from above, you'd have no authority. The Messiah comes. The Messiah is God. The Messiah does not appear. Jesus does not appear as important or significant. He's despised, rejected, oppressed, and murdered. And he allows it all to happen to himself. And it leads us to this question that's up on the screen. Why? Why did Jesus do all of this? Why did this happen to him? Why does he go through it all? Why does he take the pain? Why does he take the abuse? That's the big question. 
Ultimately, this prophecy answers it. You see, this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, it talks about Jesus, but it also talks about you and I. Did you know that you are in the prophecy of Isaiah 52 and 53? You are actually in the Old Testament. Now, not by name, but I'm going to show you that you can see yourself that you here today are actually mentioned in the Bible. Did you know that? Now, before you think, whoa, I wonder what it says, it's not going to be good. I'm just going to tell you right out of the bat. Don't get too excited. But you're not left out of the prophecy. In fact, your life is just as foretold as Jesus was, not necessarily with the specificity of Jesus, but you're there. Do you want to see it? It's right there in chapter 53, verse 6. I mentioned, you're mentioned, because it says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, how many? Everyone to his or her own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You're in the Bible. You're mentioned because you're part of the we. You're part of everyone. You're part of the all. And this passage comes and you want to answer the question, why did Jesus do it all? Why did he experience everything that he experienced? And the answer begins with this. Isaiah 53.6 says, humanity turned away from God. There's not one person in this room who has not turned from God. There's not one person here who was born who has not turned away. From the moment that we take our first breath, our hearts are bent on living for ourselves. We do not put God as number one in our lives. No one does it. Our actions, our behavior, our speech show that we've turned away. In fact, verse 5 says this. It says, every person has broken the law. It says that we have transgressions. That's what transgressions means. When was the last time you busted out transgressions in conversation, right? What does this word mean, transgressions? It means to be a lawbreaker. And whether or not you believe that the Ten Commandments came from God himself, if you just read the words of those and says, have you lived your life in perfect obedience to these things, there's now one person alive, not one person in this tent here this morning, that would say, yes, we're all law breakers. We also all have iniquity. Now, there's another word that we don't bust out all that often. It just simply means that we have participated in immoral behavior and action. It's tied to being lawbreakers, but it's not just that we break the law, but our very actions are immoral at their core. That's why I say Isaiah 53.6 means that every person who's ever born from the time of their birth to the time of their death, unless something intercedes for them, is a lawbreaker who has turned away from God. There was this woman who lived 
end of the 1800s, beginning of the 1900s. I think she died in 1936, something like that. Her name was Beatrice Webb. Most people in America don't know who Beatrice Webb was, so I'm about to tell you. She and her husband, Sidney Webb, were very significant British citizens. They had a huge impact on creating the welfare system within Great Britain. In fact, they were the co-founders of the London School of Economics. All right, so these were very influential people. And when Beatrice Webb looked at the world, she failed to see what Isaiah chapter 53, 6 says about us. In fact, her whole economic system and her view of society was one in which humanity isn't bent in upon itself, but humanity has great potential. And in 1925... She wrote in her journal these words because she had gone back and read what her journal had said, words that she had written in 1890. So here's what she wrote. She said, in my diary in 1890, I wrote, I have staked everything on the essential goodness of human nature. But now, 35 years later, she says, I realize how permanent are the evil instincts and impulses in man, and how little we can change these. She started her call to community service with this belief that there's essential goodness in all human beings. But 35 years of working in the public sector led her to realize, as a secular person, How permanent are the evil instincts and impulses in man and how little we can change these. To Beatrice Webb, I would have said, don't waste 35 years of your life trying to believe that humans are naturally good. Isaiah 53, 6 has already been written. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned to our own way. You see, this is why Jesus did what he did. Because humanity has this problem. But he came and experienced what he did because as the text unfolds, payment had to be paid. Payment had to be made for our rebellion, our turning away. And ultimately, Only the Messiah, only Jesus, only God could do it. That's the story of Isaiah 53. As it unfolds, it says that because we've turned away, we have taken upon ourselves the judgment of God, chastisement. The wrath of God comes upon us because of our rebellion. And unless somebody pays that, unless somebody takes our punishment upon himself, we are in a place of judgment and grief and sorrow. And so what does Jesus do? Why does the Messiah come? Because only he could pay it. Look back with me at these verses. Just listen once again. You see, you only know how serious an offense will be by how severely it must be punished. And so it says in verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet 
We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We should have been wounded. We should have been crushed. We should have been pierced. Yet he was for us. Verse 6 says, The Lord laid all of our iniquity, our immoral behavior, on him. And so verse 8 says, By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Verse 10 says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, and he has put him to grief. Why? So that his soul would make an offering for our guilt. This is incredible. This is the majesty. This is the glory of the incarnation of Jesus Christ and what it means for you. You see, here Isaiah is coming and saying, you want to know the result of the Messiah's coming? You see, I've told you his identity. I told you how he would be viewed. I've told you ultimately how he will be treated. I've told you why he must come. But now look at what Isaiah is saying the result of his coming will mean for us. What the payment for our rebellion means. Here's the result of the Messiah's coming. Number one, it's the message that we are forgiven for our sins. Hallelujah and amen. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. The Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. The payment that needed to be made for you and for me, Jesus paid it. <laughs> In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, the Apostle Paul summarizes in one verse basically the entirety of the message of Isaiah 53. And here's what he says. For our sake, he made him, that's Jesus, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That first phrase, for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin. Like, think about, what does that actually mean? Does it mean that Jesus became sin? Does it mean that he became sinful? No. Does it mean that he became wicked and nasty and awful? No. So what does it mean? That verse means what Isaiah 53 means. It means that God treated Jesus as though he were us. He made Jesus experience all the judgment that you and I should experience. He stood in our place. At the core and at the heart of the Christian message is this truth. It's not that we do good works in order for God to forgive and accept us. It's that God sent his one and only son to stand in our place. And what this verse tells us is that you and I are far more wicked far more corrupted, far more sinful than we could possibly imagine. And yet Jesus Christ is far more holy, far more righteous, and far more powerful than you could ever hope for. Because God takes all of our sin and he places it on Jesus and Jesus takes it. And the result is you today are forgiven in Jesus Christ. Amen and hallelujah. Do you believe that? 
on this day, December 19th, on this day, Sunday, December 19th, on this day, Sunday, December 19th, 2021, do you believe that in and through Jesus Christ, there is no more punishment due you, but you are completely and utterly forgiven through Jesus Christ? If you believe that today, you are forgiven. You live as a forgiven person. And do you want to know the litmus test? You want to know today if you truly have taken that in or in any given moment are truly believing that the Messiah of Isaiah 53 is Jesus Christ and what is said about Jesus and his work has been applied to you. Do you want to know two things today that will reveal to you if you're living in that forgiveness? I'm going to tell you anyway. The first is this. Forgiven people are forgiving people. Forgiven people are forgiving people. Now, a lot can be said about it, but let me just break it down for you. Because forgiveness is a big conversation. But let me break it down to its most simplest. There's a good chance that this Christmas season, you might come across some people in your family or extended family that you don't like all that much, huh? No, I love everybody, right? Perfectly. Forgiven people are forgiving people. Here's how I want you to think about that. Are you someone who continues to bring wrath against those who have wronged you? You see, Isaiah 53 and 52 is all about how God's wrath was turned against Jesus Christ and is no longer turned towards you. To be someone who understands the forgiveness of Jesus Christ is to say, at minimum, I no longer will hold my wrath. I will no longer seek to make the people pay who have hurt me because if God, in through Jesus Christ, has no more condemnation for me, I will not look to continue to attack those who have come against me. If there's no more wrath for you, and somebody has come and sought your forgiveness, then what you're coming and you're saying is, if I'm in Jesus Christ and I know that I'm forgiven, forgiven people, the Bible says over and over again, are forgiving people. That's number one litmus test. Number two, oh man, have you ever had somebody buy something for you that you really wanted? Have you ever had somebody in your life pay off a debt that you needed to pay or has not made you pay for something that you really wanted? What's the response in those moments? I don't know about you, but it's always been joy. It's always been thank you. It's always been, I am so grateful to you. People who have embraced the message of the Messiah coming in Jesus Christ are people who know forgiveness, and that forgiveness makes them a people who can't help but give praise and glory to God. Like if you come to worship, if you're going to come to our Christmas Eve service, and you're going to sit there, God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you wins a tri-tip on. You know, like if that's what you're thinking about, man, your mind is not in the place where you are recognizing what has actually been done for you. You're thinking, you're not thinking about he was pierced for my transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquities. I will never be crushed. I will never be pierced. Thank you, Lord. It takes us out of a place of dullness 
and it moves us to a place of worship. And if that weren't enough, Isaiah says it's not just that we get forgiveness because the Messiah came. We get righteousness. We are made righteousness. This is the great exchange. It's not just that we're brought back to a neutral spot, church. The continued theme of the Bible is forgiven by God, all sins past, present, and future, but then also made righteous. That is, in the eyes of God, he looks at you and he sees you as holy and perfect. Your identity as one who has been made righteous. Verse 11 says it. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and he shall be satisfied. What shall he see that satisfies him? By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted as what? Righteous. That's why Paul says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God's righteousness now falls upon you. You are viewed by God and should therefore view yourself as one who has been accepted by God and in the sight of God holy, which gets us to this point. Some people think that that the essence of Christianity is we try and live like Jesus Christ. That the whole point of being a Christian is to live like Jesus. That's the wrong answer. You see, the essence of Christianity is that God does for us what we cannot do Our forgiveness comes from outside of us, and then our righteousness comes from outside of us, and when it comes to us, it makes us a people who are discontented with living anything than what we already are. We live out our righteousness. We don't seek to live to be righteous. We are righteous, and we live from that. That's what's being said here. In you is a new life. In me is a new life. Why? Because he bore our griefs, he bore our sorrows, he went to the cross, he died for us, forgiving our sins and giving us his righteousness. Some people have a really hard time believing that they could be loved by God. And based upon your track record, you should. Based upon my track record, I should. I have failed God vastly more than I've ever succeeded in obeying him. And so have you. And if you think otherwise, you're mistaken. But the truth is, I'm not judged by God by the actions that I have done to make him love and accept me. I'm judged by God based upon the actions of Christ for me. And so that is my identity, and that's what motivates me to live out who I ultimately am. A righteousness has come to us. And then here's how Isaiah closes the whole thing. The result up to this point seems like his coming is all about you and me. We get forgiveness, we get righteousness. But Isaiah says, make no mistake. The ultimate result of the Messiah coming is this. Jesus Christ receives the victory, glory, and praise. Verse 12 says, this is what God says when Christ comes, the Messiah comes and obeys perfectly. He says, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. He gets the victory. He gets the rewards. And because he poured his soul out to death and was numbered with the transgressors, this is why he receives the victory. This is why he receives the glory. And this is why he receives the praise. When we look at the baby 
in the manger, when we look at Jesus, make no mistake that it is God come in human flesh. Make no mistake that he came in the most pathetic form that any person can find themselves in just as a baby. But he doesn't stay the baby. He fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah. And because he did, today he sits at the right hand of the Father. And our response to Jesus is that we don't just view him today as stricken and smitten by God. We see him as the resurrected one who still carries the scars on his hands so that we never forget he was pierced for us. But we make no mistake, he is victorious. He receives the praise and he receives the glory. May God help us this Christmas season and every day going forward to never forget what is true about our Savior, and to actually respond to him for who he is. Let's pray together, church. Lord, you are the victorious one, yet your victory came in ways that we could never imagined. Your victory and your glory was revealed in suffering and oppression and in rejection, but you took it all you allowed it all to happen because you knew that it was what was necessary so that you might conquer sin and death and hell, so that we might be forgiven, so that we might receive righteousness. And we know that this story doesn't just end with that. It starts with you in a manger. It leads to you at the cross. But the story ends with you resurrected and victorious. And the Father saying, now there's only one who is highly exalted above all, and that is my Son. And so, Lord, if there's anyone in this place today, I pray that has not accepted the Messiah that it was prophesied, and that Messiah is Jesus Christ, that they would throw off the illusion that there's any goodness in them, as Beatrice Webb came to see, and would recognize that unless forgiveness comes, unless righteousness comes, they will be pierced, they will be crushed justly by your wrath, but they won't if they receive the Savior. And so for those of us who know that to be true today, Lord, help us to then live in this. Help us to be a forgiving people because we've been forgiven. Help us to pursue righteousness because that's who we are. And that would all be done to the praise and glory of your name. And we ask this through Christ our Savior and all God's people said, amen, amen.